that's no news flash. Uh, you only had to pick up the Calgary Herald uh, this weekend in order to have that confirmed or, or any newspaper that's been printed since the dawn of the printing press. Uh, before that, I don't know, it was a carrier pigeon. Uh, they scrawled it on, on papyrus, wrote it onto an animal hide or, or chiseled it at a stone. Uh, the human race is in trouble. It's been, it's, it's been the headline since the, the dawn of time and it continues to be the headlines that dominate uh, our, our news media today, our, our realities uh, today. And if we were sitting around an early morning fire, uh, and maybe, maybe that's what you're doing this morning, maybe you're joining us from a campsite someplace, um, if so, you're very, very welcome. Uh, but if we were sitting around a, a fire at any point in history and, and beginning to sort of think about what the day is gonna hold, uh, we, we would consistently appreciate hearing good news. Like, we need to do some planning for the day, and that, that may well include discussion about tragedies present. But we'd, we'd rather hear about tragedies past that have been overcome uh, with God's help. I mean, what did we face yesterday that God brought us through? And in the telling and retelling of those accounts, can we take encouragement that in those things which we face today, our faithful God is, again, going to meet us and carry us through. We, we face, as we face these problems with humanity, one of the realities is we, we ask questions like, are we alone in this? You know, is it, is it you and me? Uh, maybe, maybe it's grandma and grandpa, you know, able to lend wisdom. Uh, you know, is it Prime Minister Trudeau and President Trump? Like, like is that as good as it gets? And, of course, the answer is, we are not alone. It's a resounding yes. Someone much bigger is with us and superintending all of this. And to maybe help get at this, I wanted to bring us back to the account of the first people of God, our people, but many, many centuries ago. So long before grandma and grandpa or their grandma and grandpa, long before, well, before Jesus even, uh, before King David, a millennia before that. Um, we're going back into uh, the ancient portion of the Old Testament. Uh, and this week we're going to look at Exodus chapters 1 and, and half or so of Exodus chapter 2. And we have this question, are we alone? And the resounding answer is no, we certainly are not. But we go back to this period of, of history. And the reality is that this was a time and a place when our people's hosts became our captors, uh, when the place of God's deliverance for us became a place of bondage and slavery. So we're going back many, many years, uh, and let me kind of even interrupt the, the narrative in, in, in this to say, this is not how family histories are, are told. Um, when, when we when we look back into the annals of our family's story, uh, typically we, and this was true of ancient writers as well, we tell the good stories. We, we tell the ones where we prevailed. And we, we skim over the ones that are, are embarrassing, uh, uh, have some degree of shame perhaps attached to them. Uh, we like to focus on the nobilities and, and the triumphs. Uh, but that's not at all what we have in the account that we have here. Our people were slaves in Egypt. That, that is far from a noble beginning. But when we tell this story, we're not actually telling a story that features our people. 
We're telling a story that features, that highlights, that celebrates our God. He is the hero here. Exodus is the second book of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. Um, It's the second book in what's called the Pentateuch. That's a grouping of the first five books of the Old Testament. Uh, They're rightly read together and tended to kind of seem uh, in, in certain ways together. And Exodus, the book of Exodus, opens with Israel in crisis, and immediately we as readers, um, we, we would need to say, well, what happened? Like, when we last left our friends, they were in a good spot. If you were with us last Sunday, Tricia Palmer uh, shared from the, the closing chapters of the book of Genesis, and God had rescued the family of Jacob through the hand of Jacob's uh, younger son, uh, Joseph, and delivered them into Egypt where he provided for them during an an enormous and devastating famine. And God used Joseph not only to save his own family, the family of Jacob, uh, son of Isaac, son of Abraham. Okay, so we're talking about the patriarchs of the Hebrew people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jacob's younger son, Joseph. God used Joseph to save not only the family, uh, but to save uh, all in Egypt who would receive the help and all in the ancient world who would come to Egypt for help. It was an extraordinary provision. Through seven years of famine and, and drought. Well, by the time we get to the opening chapter of Exodus, uh, hundreds of years have passed. Scholars debate whether it's about 250 or whether it's more like 400 years that have passed. There's a reasonable discussion to be had about either one. Uh, but, but obviously, immediately we come to face with the reality that uh, things are not, are not as good as they were. In fact, things have turned very badly for the children of Jacob. Jacob's name was changed, changed to Israel, the children of Israel. So let me read it for you. Exodus chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 8, and I read down to verse 22. I'm going to read from the New Living Translation, and this is the word of the Lord. Exodus chapter 1, verse 8. Eventually a new king came to power in Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph or what he had done. He said to his people, look, the people of Israel now outnumber us and are stronger than we are. We must make a plan to keep them from growing even more. If we don't, and if war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us. Then they will escape from the country. So the Egyptians made the Israelites their slaves. They appointed brutal slave drivers over them, hoping to wear them down with crushing labor. They forced them to build the cities of Python and Ramses as supply centers for the king. But the more the Egyptians oppressed them, the more the Israelites multiplied and spread, and the more alarmed the Egyptians became. So the Egyptians worked the people of Israel without mercy. They they made their lives bitter, forcing them to mix mortar and make bricks and do all the work in the fields. They were ruthless in all their demands. Then Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, gave this order to the Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Puha. When you help the Hebrew women as they give birth, watch as they deliver. If the baby is a boy, kill him. If it is a girl, let her live. But because the midwives feared God, they refused to obey the king's orders. They allowed the boys to live, too. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives. Why have you done this? He demanded. Why have you allowed the boys to live? 
The Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women, the midwives replied. They are more vigorous and have their babies so quickly that we cannot get there in time. So God was good to the midwives, and the Israelites continued to multiply, growing more and more powerful. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all the people. Throw every newborn Hebrew boy into the Nile River, but you may let the girls live. We'll pause in the telling of the story at that point. These were, these were overwhelming difficulties. The people of God were, were being threatened with absolute annihilation. I mean, you remove the, the, the boys, and you know, eventually there will be no more family. And the place of their deliverance, centuries before, had now become the place of their enslavement. And the pregnant question for us as readers is, where is God? I mean, where did God go in all of this narrative? You may have noticed that in those verses that I read, not once did we hear reference to God. Not once did his name appear. And so if we're sitting around the fire and and having the storytelling time looking back, we might pine. I mean, God took care of great-great-grandfather Abraham, and, and he promised him that he would take care of his children. Um, and then God took care of great-grandfather Isaac, and that was also true of, of grandfather Jacob. And, and Egypt was the place where God effected their rescue from dire circumstances. Is, this, is he now bringing disaster on, on we, his people? And one of the many things that I love about, uh, about the scriptures is how consistently we find that the questions that they were asking then are the questions that we are asking now. Where is God? Where did he go? Like, like has he noticed? Has he noticed the oppression of his people? Uh, we would be asking, has he noticed there's a pandemic going on? Has he noticed that there's death and that there's mayhem, that there's stress and, and, and great concern? Has he noticed the economic turmoil that, that not just our nation but our world is experiencing, the financial jeopardy that seems to be looming? Is God taking notice of the oppression that continues to abuse at least certain people in our world? It's still going on. Like, does he know that black lives matter? Does he know that women who are being slave traded today, that, that their lives matter? Like, has God forgotten that unborn lives matter? I mean, the human race is in trouble. Where, where is God? Now, the reality in the text that we're reading this morning is that God is profoundly present. And this is true today for you as well. God is profoundly present, whether in the text his name is mentioned at all, or whether in, in your life or mine we can clearly identify where he is at work. Now I want to take you back to the text of Exodus and invite you to notice a couple of things with me. Um, Exodus chapter 1, verse 8, reads as follows. 
Eventually, a new king came to power in Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph or what he had done. Now, now something clearly had changed here politically. Historians and biblical scholars have several theories about exactly what window of time this fits into. It may have been one of those periods of time in uh, Egypt's known history where there was political instability going on. A weak king, things had changed, uh, beginning of a new dynasty. Um, or, Or it could be, as the NIV translates this, a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. In other words, he just didn't care who Joseph was. Whatever exactly went down politically there, there was change, and it did not bode well for the children of Israel, the children of Jacob. Now notice something else here in verse 9, right after that. Uh, The narrator tells us this. He said to his people, Pharaoh said to his people, look, the people of Israel now outnumber us and are stronger than we are. So, So, Kind of underscoring this point, the Israelites were experiencing prosperity, just as God had promised them. He promised Abraham that he would make him into a great nation, that he would give him land, that he would give him, his children would be as the stars of the universe. And, and that blessing is being realized here, but now the neighbors are, are, are maybe looking on with some jealousy perhaps, Certainly with suspicion and fear, Pharaoh himself articulates that. And so the people would be saying, but but where is God? Well, God is doing exactly what he said he would do. He he is blessing them. He is bringing fulfillment of the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And here they are in the borders of one of the largest nations of the, the world in that day, to this day, the longest standing nation in all of history, and that was true then, continuously run nation, the nation of Egypt. Here they are in these borders, and they have outgrown the borders. They have outgrown this space. Now, now notice something else here. So, so God was blessing them, uh, and, and so he's present in that way. But notice also that the deadly strategies hatched against the people were largely unsuccessful. Um, verse 11 says that they, uh, the, the Egyptians worked them mercilessly. Uh, and the, the strategy, the idea is, look, we'll, we'll wear them down so badly <laughs> that they will come to the end of each and every day so utterly exhausted and bruised and beaten up and spent, the last thing on their mind is going to be procreation. <laughs> It's going to be, you know, multiplying. Apparently not. (laughs) Apparently not. They continued to multiply. And then, uh, so so that strategy failed. You get to verse 15, and then when Pharaoh ordered the midwives to murder the baby boys, they work a loophole here and refuse. And then when you expect that them being called up in front of Pharaoh to kind of bring account, like this is going to be their end, But it actually works in the opposite way. God blesses them, and they themselves end up with families. So so where's God in the midst? God is blessing. He's doing what he said he would do. You might also notice that there is all kinds of irony going on in this account. 
Moses, uh, who, who's written the, the volumes of uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. Moses, his hand is significantly there. We also know that editors uh, took and massaged that, put elements together for us. We know that Moses didn't write about his own death, for instance. Um, but but they, these are master storytellers. They have put this together and they're expecting us to get a good laugh as we read this through. Uh, maybe, maybe that's why these make it into kids' zone accounts. It's not because on the first reading these things are anything like G or PG rating. You know, we got murder and mayhem and, and strategy and oh my goodness, right? Um, but th- there's humor in the presentation of it. So, so follow this. Mighty Pharaoh, perhaps the most powerful king in the world of that day, is in the ring against these wimpy slaves. They're under his power and authority. I mean, this is the mismatch of the millennia, and he can't even stop them from having sex and making babies, right? You know, I mean, all the wise strategies of the great Pharaoh, king of the world, is thwarted by two simple Hebrew midwives. And when Pharaoh finally turns to his own people and says, look, everybody, we've got to kill these baby boys, um, they didn't do it. Or, or at least it certainly was not the end of the Hebrew people. And, and, and we say, well, what's, what's going on here, really? Like, what are the storytellers, what is Moses wanting us to, to understand, to grasp here? And, and, and it's at least this. Pharaoh thought that he was in the ring with these wimpy slaves, when in reality, and we're going to continue to read through the account, when in reality he's gotten in the ring with their God. He has gotten in the ring with their defender. He's gotten in the ring with the one who has declared his plan and purposes for his people, and he will not be thwarted, not by Pharaoh or the evil that Pharaoh represents. And, and in fact, we're going to encounter that the I am that I am, the, self, uh, the self-sustaining, self-existing one, uh, is who's in the ring here, fighting on behalf of his people, accomplishing his purposes. In fact, over the next few Sundays, as we continue in our Campfire Stories series, um, the preachers from among our church family are going to kind of take different accounts. And this is what we're going to see over and over and over again. I mean, God here is humbling the proud and self-important international leader, Pharaoh. And God is humbling the supposed false gods and all who would turn to these no gods in order to find help and meaning in life. And in the exposing of their weakness is inviting all humanity to turn to him and be saved. God is showing himself to the world with this invitation. Come and be reconciled to me. So where's God? He's right there with them. He's right there. He's he's with them in their pain and suffering. He's calling on them to endure. Time is coming. I was thinking last week when Tricia was, was sharing from the story of, of Joseph. What was the guy thinking you know, when he spends you know, roughly 10, 12 years in prison? 
Where's God, right? That God just doesn't seem to be in the hurry we think he should be in to accomplish his work. And we see that here as well. For the majority of those 250, 400 years, the Israelites had experienced prosperity. Now things have turned. Where's God? He's right there with them and he's working his plan. And he's doing it through what we'll call subtle preparations. If you haven't downloaded sermon notes from, the, from our website, I'd encourage you to do so. Um, you kind of come back to this this week. Uh, but, but where is God? Where has he been in all of this? Well, he's been right there in the midst of his people. Um, and, and he's at work with subtle preparations. Um, let me read that for you. Chapter 2, starting at verse 1. I'm just going to read down, just going to read down to verse 10. About this time, a man and woman from the tribe of Levi got married. That's nice, isn't it? A love story, right? We like a little romance in our narratives. The woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She saw that he was a special baby and kept him hidden for three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she got a basket made of papyrus reeds and waterproofed it with tar and pitch. She put the baby in the basket and laid it among, among the reeds along the bank of the Nile River. She's technically fulfilled what Pharaoh said. The baby's sister then stood at a distance watching to see what would happen to the, to the baby. Soon Pharaoh's daughter came down to bathe in the river and her attendants walked along the riverbank. When the princess saw the basket among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it for her. When the princess opened it, she saw the baby. The little boy was crying and she felt sorry for him. This must be one of the Hebrew children, she said. Then the baby's sister approached the princess. Should I go and, and find one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you, she asked. Yes, do, the princess replied. So the girl went and called the baby's mother. Take this baby and nurse him for me, the princess told the baby's mother. I will pay you for your help. So the woman took her baby home and nursed him. Later, when the boy was older... His mother brought him back to Pharaoh's daughter, who adopted him as her own son. The princess named him Moses, for she, re she explained, I lifted him out of the water. <laughs> uh, God was taking action. Uh, the narrators are having some fun uh, with us, helping us see the humor of what's taking place here. And, and all the action seems to be happening in, in little, subtle ways. Uh, for instance, God is at work through seemingly insignificant people. I mean, if we were making a movie about this, we might call it Five Women and a Baby. Uh, two Hebrew midwives, they defy Pharaoh. They effectively say, look, you know, you may be king, but the decree you just issued is immoral. We cannot obey it. Human life is sacred, and we refuse to murder these baby boys. And then Pharaoh's daughter, she defies uh, his insanity and adopts one of these babies. And then two more Hebrew women, slave women. One's Moses' big sister, probably Miriam. We will encounter her later in the book of Exodus. Uh, the other, his mom, uh, become instruments of God's deliverance for at least one of the babies who is being spared. 
I mean, the Hebrew people survived, so we've got to assume that that many more baby boys survived as well. But we're hearing about Moses because Moses is the baby that God is going to use to affect the delivery of his people. Subtle preparations. I mentioned the irony that's present in the story. We run into it again here. I mean, I'm sure it was not funny in the living of it, but it was in retrospect. It was being able to look back and to be able to see, look what God was doing. Isn't that hilarious? Like, did you notice the words of the Egyptian princess? You know, we're talking about irony here. The narrator tells us the princess named him Moses, and so she exclaimed, I lifted him out of the water. Those are big words. Those are big words. And and, and the irony is this. This is going to happen over and over and over again through the accounts of history when God shows up. There will be those who will defy God and stand in opposition to his blessings uh, and in opposition to his good work. They will oppose him like Pharaoh. And there will be those who represent God himself. I will lift him out of the water. They they will represent God himself and they will partner with him in the good work that he's resolving to do. And in this case, it's not even a Hebrew. This is a non-Hebrew whom God is going to use in order to effect his deliverance. And we as readers are invited to chuckle right along. I mean, not only that, but these are women in a man's world. Like that... All the big and powerful people, none of them are the ones that are being the heroes God's using here. A third kind of point of irony, she represents the government. Like, like this is a Pharaoh's daughter. It's not just some random Egyptian that, that's gotten invo- involved. And, and so we're being cued that God is at work in, in the subtle preparations. Of, he's been there for days, weeks, months, for, for years, even for centuries. God has been at work. Because this story does, in fact, span centuries. God had promised Abraham centuries before that he would make him into a great nation. It's happening here. The children are there. And now the second part of that promise is about to be fulfilled. He's preparing them to to take them out of the land of Egypt and take them into the land that he promised to them. And the storytelling here is fantastic. This is epic narrative storytelling. Like this is, it's going on through the entire book of Exodus, but it's going on through even more than this. I mean, it really starts in, in Genesis, and it's a story that's going to span the, the entire Pentateuch, these first five books of the Bible. God promised that back in Genesis, uh, he was going to fix the sin problem in our world. Remember, the human race is in trouble. This is not news to God, and he's been making preparations. And, and the storytelling is wonderful, and it's real history. It is God at work in the midst of our lives. And this is a theme that not only will cover centuries, it's a theme that's going to cover millennia, thousands of years. I mean, this isn't the first time that God has rescued his people by putting them into a little boat coated in tar and pitch and and then delivering them through the overwhelming waters, is it? Think Noah, early Genesis. And maybe you've noticed that this story of God using a little baby to rescue his people has some foreshadowing, uh, some overtones of another baby who was placed in a boat-shaped manger many years later. In order that that he would be delivered through the waters of baptism and, and ultimately through death, 
on our behalf, for our rescue. His death is what would enable us to be made right with God. He has led us into the promised land of God's favor. Does that account sound familiar to you? Human beings even continue to tell stories like these. And every one is an invitation to recognize that the hero in that movie that I just watched is in some way, shape, or form like God. And we love the, 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 the weak character becomes strong. The underdog overcomes, uh, overachieves, overcomes the, the, the oppression that is around and, and makes good. These are the kinds of stories that are being told and they are reflections of the greatest story that has ever been told. Subtle preparations. Five women and a baby. And then a, a little bit of education is thrown in. More irony. <laughs> I say a little bit of education. Actually, this is the best education the ancient world could possibly have offered. Um, God has a sense of humor here. Not only does he arrange for uh, the, the rescue of Moses, uh, for uh, Pharaoh's daughter to actually pay Moses' mother, the slave, to care for her own baby, uh, giving them, the, his family, the opportunity to, to be able to coach him, nurture him in, in faith, uh, trusting in Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But then when he's taken to Pharaoh's uh, palace uh, to continue his education, he's going to get the Ivy League education of the day. He's going to be thoroughly trained in, in, in reading and writing of the, the ancient languages. Uh, he's, going to be, he's going to learn about economics and leadership theory and, and battle strategy and, and military management. Uh, I mean, here we have Pharaoh educating the very guy that, that God is going to use to be Pharaoh's undoing. So, so where is God in the midst of these overwhelming difficulties? He's right there. He's right here. He's in the details. He's behind the scenes. He's maneuvering. He's maneuvering the subtle preparations that would lead, that would lead us to him and would lead him into his active deliverance of us. Our best perspective on this comes from the writers of the New Testament as they look back on what became a paradigm of what God does and how he does it. Matthew, in his gospel, drew intentional parallels between God's deliverance of, of Israel out of Egypt and his ultimate delivery of humanity out of sin. He often describes Jesus as uh, the greater Moses, a, a greater Moses. But listen to the, what the writer of Hebrews says later in the New Testament. Um, in Hebrews chapter 11, what's often called the hall of faith. Uh, we jump in at, uh, at verse 23, and the writer says this, <clears throat> pardon me. It was by faith that Moses' parents hid him for three months when he was born. They saw that God had given them an unusual child, and they were not afraid to disobey the king's command. It was by faith that Moses, when he grew up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to share the oppression of God's people instead of enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. He thought it was better to suffer for the sake of Christ than to own the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking ahead to his great reward. It was by faith that Moses left the land of Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He kept right on going because he kept his eyes on the one who is invisible." 
It was by faith that Moses commanded the people of Israel to keep the Passover and to sprinkle blood on the doorposts so that the angel of death would not kill their firstborn sons. It was by faith that the people of Israel went right through the Red Sea as though they were on dry ground, but when the Egyptians tried to follow, they were all drowned. God has been putting pieces into place, but he requires his servants, he requires his people to respond with faith. I mean, the women needed to believe there was a higher moral ethic and and that they would put their faith and trust in God rather than their faith and trust in Pharaoh. Uh, uh, This would be true of Moses, too. We're going to see it in the weeks ahead as we go through the accounts of his life. Will he trust God? So Old Testament scholar Terence Fretheim writes the following. He says, The choice of the five women in chapters 1 and 2 entails much risk and vulnerability for God. That risk, that risk is real. For these persons could fail, and God would have to begin again. But they prove highly effective against the ruthless forms of systemic power. And God is not the subject of a single verb in their various under, undertakings. Even more, God's plan for the future of the children of Israel rests squarely on the shoulders of one of its helpless sons, a baby in a fragile basket. Who would have believed that the arm of the Lord could be revealed in such a one? God moves throughout this section in unobtrusive, unlikely, and vulnerable ways. These amazing stories are revealing God then and now. And they are They're also calling us to respond in our day the way they called those people in their day to to, to respond. We must respond with faith. We're invited to keep our eyes on the one who is invisible. We're being called to trust, and as God has been at work throughout history past, he is at work in history present as well. Whether we can see him or, or not, whether we understand what he's doing, And we're being called to make real decisions in real time that have real implications for our future and the future of everyone around us. These biblical biblical accounts invite us, they call us, to to answer a couple of really, really important questions. Here's the first one that comes to mind. Will you walk by faith? In obedience to God, it's the best best you understand it. Will you follow God? Will you respond to God by faith? God is constantly at work in our world. He's constantly creating new things. He wants to create faith in you and and stir you to follow him. He's moving in in his good purposes forward in our world. And and he's constantly at work against the forces of evil that would attempt to undo God's good work and throw us back into that place uh, where the earth was was formless and void. The question is, will you be... uh, Will you be a pharaoh or will you be his daughter? Like if you have to put yourself in the story, would you? Uh, Will you walk by sight or will you walk by faith? Taking God's hand, trusting that he is leading you. Let God into the ring. Whatever you're facing, let God into the ring to do battle for you. Here's the second question, and that is, will you grow in your understanding of him, thereby strengthening the faith that you have? I mean, Satan and every pharaoh that will partner with Satan will attempt to undo God's good work in you, and it will require intentional effort on your part to counter that undoing. 
And the invitation is to continue to learn who Jesus is and to grow up in our love for him and to grow in to to greater experience of God among us as his people and to grow out in our expressions of love to his world. And this summer, you may have some wonderful opportunities to, to, to engage in some of this. Maybe it's around a fire pit or a campfire when you've got friends or family there and it's an opportunity to recount some of the stories of God's work past. Remember that story in Scripture? But, but then add some of your own. What about how God is at work now in your own life? Perhaps right here, right now, even emboldening you to take some steps of faith in trusting him. Will you trust him? Will you grow in him? I want to invite you to pray with me and, uh, and, and we'll bow together. Heavenly Father, you are good and your love endures forever. Would you meet us again this morning in this time and in this place? Lord, some of us are struggling with a fundamental question of faith. Will we trust you? Lead us, Lord. Friends, I want to just invite you in this quiet moment To answer the question, will you give Jesus your yes? Jesus, yes, I will put my faith and my trust in you. Would you do that now? Maybe words like these. Jesus, please forgive my sin. Jesus, come fill my life. Jesus, teach me to walk with you, my faith. And Lord, others among us are struggling to grow. We become immobile, and you're calling us up, in and out. Will you lead us into deeper, more engaged experience of you, Lord? Teach us your ways, O Lord, we ask. All of this, in the precious name of Jesus, amen.